Today on Your Money, Your Wealth, I've collected a slew of your Roth IRA questions, and Joe and Big Al, along with Brian Perry, CFP, CFA from Pure Financial Advisors, have got some answers for you. When should you do a Roth conversion? Should you wait until you're in retirement or convert now? What kind of income is it? How do you convert slowly so that the tax bite doesn't hurt so much? How long do you have to work before you can contribute to a Roth IRA? Does the five-year rule apply for Roth withdrawals after age 59 and a half? Plus, the fellas answer a few non-Roth questions as well about estate planning, reverse mortgages, transferring from a variable annuity to a traditional IRA, and using HSA funds to pay Medicare premiums. I'm producer Andy Last, and here to get the Roth ball rolling are Joe Anderson, CFP, and Big Al Clopine, CPA. Let's go to Jim from Santa Cruz, California. Joe and Al, my wife and I... While joint returns in our income is in the 22% tax bracket, but we believe tax rates will be higher when we re, uh, retire in 8 to 10 years. Uh, consequently, I plan to begin transferring money from our tax-deferred accounts into our Roth accounts. Knowing that this will incur tax liabilities, I'm hoping you can clarify a couple of details. All right, so Jim is doing a little bit of planning. Looking to retire here in 8 to 10 years. He's in the 22% tax bracket. He's like, okay, I got some money in my retirement account. I think tax rates are going to be higher, so maybe it might make sense to move my tax-deferred accounts into a Roth account, so then the income that I receive from that will be tax-free. So, question number one. For tax purposes, when must these transfers be made? If I move money in March 2020, can the income be included on my 2019 return? The answer to that is no. It has to be done in the calendar year. So December 31st is your last day to do a Roth conversion. And people get very confused on this because a Roth contribution, uh, which is the $6,000 or $7,000 if you're 50 and older, that can be done until April 15th of the following year for that last tax year. But a Roth conversion needs to be done between January 1st and December 31st to be counted as income in that year. So that requires you to do a little bit of tax planning close to year end because you're not you're, you're not preparing your tax return yet, so you have to kind of do a projection or an estimate to figure out how much to convert and what tax bracket to convert it up to. So next question is, how exactly is transferred money tax? Is it considered regular income on the 1040? before personal and or itemized deductions are taken. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's considered ordinary income, it's regular income. Regular income. Shows right up on your 1040, probably uh, probably line it's, three now. I think it's line four, four. maybe five, four or five. Um, <clears throat> yes, it's line four. All right. Does the five-year rule for Roth withdrawals apply after 59 and a half? Uh, yes and no. Uh, Jim, let me answer that because the five-year rule is is quite confusing. Yes, it is confusing. Uh, there's actually two five-year rules, two five-year clocks. Um, the one, let, let's talk about contributions first. So the five-year clock means this: is that the money needs to season in the Roth IRA for five years or fifty-nine and a half, whichever is longer. Longer, so that's the key, right? Mm-hmm. So you could do your first Roth contribution in when you're 60, right? And then you have to wait. Okay, so if I'm doing a Roth contribution at age 50, right, 55, then I would have access to the the principal. But wait a minute, I'm under 59 and a half, so that doesn't work. So I have to turn 59 and a half to get access to the money. Five years or 59 and a half, whichever is longer. 
So, but on contributions, you have access to the contributions at any time. Yeah, and this is where it's confusing because we're really only talking about the growth and earnings, right? The principal, the $6,000 that you put in last April 15th, you actually have access to that at any age, at any time, for any reason. You just have to leave the, the growth and earnings in there. Right. And so with the contribution, let's say you made um, subsequent contributions. You started um, in, let's say, 2018, then you did another one in 2019, and you want to do another one in 2020. So the five-year clock and all those contributions within those three years started in 2018 with the first dollar that went into the first Roth IRA. So you just have to wait two more years, then everything is satisfied for that five-year clock, as long as you're over 59 and a half. Right. So by everything, that's obviously not only the contribution, but the income and the growth. All of those are tax-free. So five-year clock for contributions, 59 and a half, or five years, whichever is longer. Conversions. Well, before you do that... By the way, let's say you put $6,000 in and it grows to 6500 If you want to take 6000 out, they count your contribution as coming out first. So you can take the 6000 out, no tax consequence. The $500 you leave in is, of course, not taxed, no penalty, no taxes, no nothing. Didn't we? All right, that's good. Didn't say that. Yeah, well, it's very thorough. Yeah. So, so conversions oh boy. have its own separate five-year clock with each conversion that you make until you turn 59 and a half. Let me explain. So let's say I am 57 years old. I do a conversion. All right? I have access to the conversion dollars because I already pay taxes on them. But again, the growth is what it's kind of, all right. Um, well, actually, not on a conversion. No, not on, uh, on a contribution. I, I was, I was getting myself confused with that stupid <laughs> comment you made. On a conversion, you have to wait five years to have access to the dollars. If you're under fifty nine and a half, yes, that's correct. All right. If you're over fifty nine and a half, you have access to the conversion dollars right away. Yes. Here's the stipulation with this stupid rule. is because before what people did is that they converted prior to 59 and a half, and then they took the money out the next day, and they avoided the 10% penalty. Right. Right? So you, so it's like, I need the cash. Let me just convert the 50 grand, yeah, no, pay the tax, and then I'm going to take it out, and I'm going to save 5,000 bucks in, in penalties. It's a workaround. And IRS said, no, you can't do that. you got to wait five years before you have access to it. So it's with a conversion... You have to wait five years, 59 and a half, whichever is longer. But in, on a conversion, you have each conversion has its own five year clock. So if I do a conversion at age 57, that has its own five year clock, 58, own five year clock, 59, own five year clock. But now I'm over 59 and a half. You can have access to the conversion dollars, but you have to wait the five years for the growth to get out of the account. Yeah, and it's the first dollar that you put in a Roth, whether it's a conversion or a contribution, that starts your five year clock. Now, if that's clear, then I got a job for you because it's the transcript of this will be in the podcast show notes this, if you want to go back and this, read it eight hundred times so that you about get it. As complicated as it gets. So it goes: Does the five-year rule for Roth withdrawals apply after fifty-nine and a half? So yes and no. <laughs> Are you going to go through it again? No. Just I would say, yeah, I, I would say you're fine. <laughs> <laughs> in many cases. In, yes, in most cases, right? In most cases. But, you know, hey, we got to get in the Nats' ass on some of this stuff. We said people are going to... Never heard that one. <laughs> oh, no, that, that's, a, that's a Midwestern. I've heard that. Right. That's very detailed. It's very Minnesotan. Yes. Well, yeah. There's a lot of Nats in Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, I also have an HSA account. 
My understanding is that HSA withdrawals after 59 and a half are never taxed if used for medical dental purposes, but if they are treated um, uh, for regular purposes, um, they are taxed. Yes. How are Medicare premiums, Plan B, uh, D, uh, whatever, classified? QQ. QQ. I've never <laughs> heard of Plan QQ. Me neither. Um, so will I incur a tax bill if I use HSA funds to pay Medicare supplement premiums? Let's uh, say you, Alan. I, I say no because health insurance premiums are a la- are a qualifying expense uh, out of an HSA plan, and, and you don't have to be fifty nine and a half. By the way, you can use it for you can use it for qualifying medical expenses at any age. But after fifty nine and a half, it turns into an IRA, basically, is what he's saying. So you could keep it in the HSA, the health savings account. Right, but then the HSA blows up at sixty-five. Right, you cannot contribute to an HSA anymore. Yeah, but you would keep you would keep the HSA because it's tax-free going forward. You, you know, using it for medical costs. But if you want to use it for regular purposes, you could turn it. You could roll it into an IRA. You could. You, then you just pay tax. Pay tax on, on your, your right, but no penalty. Purposes, but yeah. no penalty. Correct. Yeah. Okay. We're, Which we're, yeah, we're on the same page. I, okay. I think. <laughs> yes, we're on the same page. <laughs> I'm just on the top of the page. Uh, I'm I'm in the in the meat in the middle. <laughs> All right. Since learning about your podcast a few weeks ago, I've now listened to roughly a dozen episodes. Jim, you got to get a life. It's the best financial advice podcast I've ever found. Look at Jim, best ever from Santa Cruz, California. Uh, thanks for everything you do. Thanks for reading my letter. He did specifically say for people nearing retirement. That's true. Not just he said it's the best podcast ever. <laughs> That's what I'm reading this right here. That's what Jim said. That's because you're dyslexic. Oh, he never said ever. What he said? <laughs> it's the best financial podcast that I've found for people nearing retirement. Oh, well. there's no ever. <laughs> that's like all inclusive. That's like just kind of bumping it up. That's a little like in, bit. in the history of I don't podcasts. Know. We got Joe. He writes in from uh, Wisconsin, Wisconsin. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, awesome podcast. Thank you, Joe. Only found it a couple of weeks ago. All right, I would like to ask you a question, Joe, from Wisconsin. How did you just find us a couple of weeks ago? I mean, how do people find us? I guess is the question. So we're getting a lot of these, right? Hey, just found you a week ago. Found you a couple of weeks ago. Found you, blah blah blah. I'm like, where have you been, Joe? We've done. Hundreds of these. 239. 239. Exactly. And that, that's, we started this show in 2000. Yeah, but that was radio. You weren't doing the podcast in 2000. Well, we started the, we started the show in was. 2008. No, 2007. No, it was 2006. We did. Um, yeah, and Joe in Wisconsin was not listening. I, well, I know. <laughs> Apparently I know. not. Apparently. But I would like to know, Joe, how you found us. So if you want to write us back, that would be great and say, you know what? I found you from this. Or you're just scrolling through or all of a sudden we're, we're getting a little bit of love because someone gave us a review. Is that how people find us? I don't know. All right. So, ladies and gentlemen, awesome podcast. Only found you a couple of weeks ago. My question, if I turn 65 in January... And I want to invest fourteen grand for myself and spouse uh, for Roth IRAs next year. How long do I have to work? Is it until I make fourteen thousand in income? 
is the amount of income, gross or net? Spouse is not working. Thanks, and keep up the awesome podcast. Joe, great question. So Joe wants to retire, wants to squeeze in a couple more bucks in the old Roth IRA. Yeah, good idea. So let's see. Is it gross or net, or what has he got? Well, what is he going to do here? It's, it's based upon gross income, so the $14,000 gross. And the answer is once you hit 14000 of gross income, you're done. It doesn't matter if it takes you one day or all 365 days. Once you get to 14000 of income, you can do the the, the 7000 a piece. 7000 for you being 50 and older, 7000 for your wife being 50 and older. Question. Joe makes $14,000. Puts $14,000 into a 401k plan. Great question. His gross income's 14000 Yeah. Can so, he still contribute to a Roth? No. No, because those are interchangeable. So if you want to, you can put half of it in a 401k and do the other half in a Roth or half of it in a regular IRA, half in a Roth, however you want to do it. But 401k rules, let's say if he makes 100 grand, he can put 401k and Roth, oh, no sure. problem. Sure, but the earned. The 14,000, it's basically, so it's, then it's not gross income because his gross income's 14 grand. Yeah. And, uh, even it, though he, so it's, it's is it net? Well, it's because <laughs> that's I think that's maybe what he's getting at, or yeah, what? Well, I think he's getting at net of withholdings, right? That's what most people think of as net, but but it gets even more complicated than that since you brought it up. And so, let's say the fourteen thousand dollars is self-employment income, right. for example, then half of the self-employment tax is a deduction, right? And so, let's just call that a thousand bucks to make it easy math, right? So, in that example, you could only put thirteen thousand dollars into a Roth because the, you, you get a deduction of $1,000 for half of the self-employment tax. Furthermore, if you have self-employed health insurance, that comes off of that too. So it's, it's, a, it's a more complicated answer than gross. But, but I think what most people think of is gross and net. Gross is what, what I'm making. Net is what, I'm, what I get as a paycheck. Right and and generally um, now if if part of that is a is a four hundred one k already yeah that has to be subtracted that is a deduction and so you'd have to earn more than fourteen thousand. See, I knew I could make the simple question a lot more complicated. <laughs> That's because what we're good I mean at. it's it's it's, it's entered. Right, you uh, you you call a normal podcast, they're just going to say a real simple easy answer, but. No question. Yeah. We got to dive into all the crannies here. Yeah. We got to go we, around in circles. And, and we can we can go deeper than that because there's this qualified business income deduction. QBI. If yes. it's if self-employment, right? And so 14,000 of Now in this particular case if it's self-employment income, it's it's net, right? Because it's it's maybe you got $20,000 from your customer, you had $6,000 of expenses, so the rules are completely different if you have a business. So fourteen thousand was your bottom line profit, and so your p- potential deduction, qualified business income, is twenty percent of that number. So, what would that be? That'd be twenty eight hundred dollars, I think, if I did the math right. Close enough. Yeah, I think it's exact. To be, <laughs> to be, to be frank. <laughs> Jesus! So, so tw- wow. Twenty eight hundred dollar deduction off the fourteen. Okay, but if you put money into a 401k or you have self-employed health insurance, then that brings that the dollar amount where you don't get any QBI. But if you put the 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 difference, I guess, in the Roth IRA, that still counts against QBI income. So this it can get super complicated, actually. 
This is definitely not a normal podcast, and there's a good chance that your head is spinning at this point. If so, read the transcript of the entire episode, learn more about the Qualified Business Income Deduction, download the Roth IRA Basics Guide, and check out all the other free financial resources available to you in the podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Go straight there simply by clicking the link in the description of today's episode in your podcast app. Now, if you'd like a deep dive on your financial quandary, or if you just have comments or stories to share, click Ask Joe and Al on air at yourmoneyyourwealth.com and send it in as a voice message or an email, and the fellows will respond right here on YMYW. You want me to read something? I was just suggesting that we have a, one from the podcast uh, survey that might be a good one for you to answer. Well, you don't think we're going to get to them all today? I really don't. We have like three <laughs> more pages of emails, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> you want me to the Green Yoga House? Yep. Green Yoga House. Pod. Yeah. All right. Well, it's question two. Did we already answer question one? Al and Brian answered it while you were in Minnesota. Oh, that show probably sucked. <laughs> yeah, it's our highest rated show ever. What are you talking about? <laughs> uh, okay, Green Yoga House. Let me see. Let me take a crack at it. <laughs> For a family net worth of about two and a half to three million dollars in most in 401ks, both 58 with 22-24% tax rate and retire at 65. Well, the 22 and 24% tax rates are, I mean, these rates now are so wide, those brackets. Yeah, they are. Uh, the retirement income is somewhere 150, 190 a year. Should we roll over some each year now or wait until we re, uh, retire uh, to Roth or starting now to Roth 401k. So Green Yoga House is asking a question. She's got two and a half to three million dollars. Most of it's in 401ks, Al. She's 58 years old, or Green Yoga House is 50, and I'm guessing it's a she. Um, <laughs> you think? I don't know. I don't know why you, you that think? just seems like a she to me. All right. So the, the retirement income is going to be 150, 190. Should we roll over some each year now? I would do it, Green Yoga House. Yeah, you got two and a half, three million dollars in Roths, and your retirement income is going to be one hundred fifty to two hundred grand. You're in the twenty-two, twenty-four percent tax bracket. You're yeah. going to be in the twenty-eight or EMT or thirty-two. That's right. You're going to be between twenty-five and twenty-eight percent. Maybe subject to alternative minimum tax, which could feel like thirty-five percent. So twenty-two to twenty-four seems like a like a low rate. All right. Uh, this next one is uh, it's actually anonymous, but we're going to go with Coco. How do you uh, get Coco? Well, that you just made it up? No, that was part of the first half of their email address. Oh, their email address was Coco Farts. Oh, at something. <laughs> Got it. So, so, so we're going with Coco. I'm sorry, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so this came from the podcast survey. Coco wants to know how can I move traditional 401k money slowly into a Roth IRA to make the tax not hurt so much all at one time. Good question. What do you got, Brian? <laughs> this is like your favorite question. You know, I, I think the idea is it's bread and butter of what you should be doing when you're considering your future tax situation, right? Is you look at what tax bracket you're in today, what tax bracket you're likely to be in the future, and then you try to smooth that out across your lifetime and avoid, you know, doing it too much at once because then you'll get killed on taxes, but you systematically move a little bit at a time. And in lower income years, you move more. Yeah, I think, that, and I think a lot of people don't realize when you do a Roth conversion. So that's simply taking money out of your 401k, out of your IRA, and converting it to a Roth. Once you do that, all future growth and in income and principles tax-free. So that's, that's the good news. The bad news is whatever you convert is treated just like income, just like you received it. 
Well, you didn't really receive it because it went into another savings account, which is another retirement account called a Roth IRA, but you got to pay the taxes. So you always want to be careful how much you convert. You do not have to convert all of it in one year. You can convert a little this year, a little next, next year. There's no limitations, and, uh, and I think a lot of people don't realize that. It doesn't matter how much money you make. Right? It doesn't matter whether you're working or not. You can convert as much as you want at any age. You can convert at age 15 if you have IRAs to convert. You could convert at age 95 if you want to. Uh, a lot of people get this mixed up with a Roth contribution, which has completely different rules. That one, you have to have earned income, and you have to be under certain income limitations or in, in income levels to be able to do that. So are there, do you have any strategies for where you should pull that money from to pay the taxes on a Roth conversion? Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah. Generally, you want to pay that with non-retirement dollars, so, so a brokerage account or a savings account or a CD, something like that. You can, in certain circumstances, pay it right out of the IRA, but we don't like that generally because now you're paying taxes with the same, you know, you're paying taxes on taxes on right. taxes, and yeah. it's just not a good, it's not a good formula. We we have seen it make sense in certain cases where people have so much money in an IRA or 401k, and they have no other money outside of, of, of retirement, and they're going to be in a much higher bracket when it comes to retirement. And believe it or not, that happens when mm -hmm. you combine required minimum distributions along with pensions and Social Security. Yep. And do keep in mind that if you're used to contributing directly to a Roth IRA, the April 15th is the deadline there. December 31st would be applicable in this case. So if you're doing the conversion, it's a different deadline than the contribution. And if you don't get in by December 31st, you've lost the opportunity for that year. Uh, if you're a little bit younger, it may not matter. But if you're getting a little bit older and you're approaching 70 and a half where the required minimum distributions kick in, as we head into the end of the year here towards the end of 2019, you want to, if a conversion is appropriate, do it before calendar year end, or you've lost one of your opportunities to move money before RMDs kick in. All right. The next one comes from Bill in Reno, Nevada. He says, I'd like to hear more about estate planning and inheritance issues. For example, how to handle it when you inherit property with others. And also, what should my IRA beneficiaries expect? And this is pretty cool. He gave us a great compliment. <laughs> he said, when Joe and Al answer listeners' questions accurately with the perfect measure of humor, the magic of YMYW happens. Keep it up, gentlemen. I wonder how often we answer them accurately. <laughs> That's, well, it's always with humor, so at least you yeah, got that probably. side going for you. At least you. we got that going. Less frequently when I'm subbing for Joe, <laughs> undoubtedly. <laughs> so, great question, Bill. So, you're asking about estate planning, inheritance issues, how to handle it when you inherit property with others, and what should your IRA beneficiaries expect? So there's um, there's a couple things there. Maybe we'll start with IRA beneficiaries. So so let's let's say Bill has four kids, and he wants his four kids to inherit his IRA equally, so 25%. So how does that work? Uh, well, you just add in your beneficiary election, you uh, designate each of your children 25% beneficiary. Yeah, th th easy enough. And then when you, when you pass, then what happens is each kid then will set up their own IRA. So it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't stay together. You, they get their own individual. It's called an inherited IRA account. And so in the inherited, in the inherited IRA account, uh, and this is true of any beneficiary that's not a spouse, they have to start taking required minimum distributions right away. At, at, at their current age, even if they're age two, like let's say it's, it's to a, a great grandchild, let's, let's say for example. So it's, and it's based upon that individual's life expectancy. Now with regards to other properties, like, like let's say it's your house, 
Okay, that's a little trickier because now you you have, and maybe it's in your trust or maybe it's in your will that each of the four kids are going to get twenty five percent. What what thoughts do you have there? Well, I th- I think a lot of times having that conversation, if you're comfortable doing it with people beforehand, makes sense because I've seen and heard of a lot of families that squabble certainly while they're alive and then let alone from beyond the grave. So I think a lot of it is having that conversation because maybe one of the children actually want to stay in the house. Maybe their sentimental value. Maybe they want nothing to do with it. Um, so having that conversation and figuring out, is this something that's just going to be sold upon your passing and the proceeds distributed? Is this something where maybe there are liquid assets as well? And maybe one of the kids that lives still in town wants to move into the house and the other three will take cash and securities in lieu of an ownership in the house. And so, you know, the, the tighter you can get on a lot of the inheritance stuff prior to passing on, the, the smoother everything's going to be. Something to remember is is when you're trying to figure out your um, your 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 plan, your state plan, you don't necessarily have to give the same percentages to every kid. In other words, for, for a house, maybe one kid wants to live in it and the others don't. And so maybe you give the other kids other assets that are in equivalent value. So it doesn't have to be all four on each property. So that's something to think about. I, I will say, though, if your kids do inherit your property and they each own 25%, now it's now it's a bit of a burden on them to try to figure out what to do, and oftentimes they're uh, they're all they all have to sign off on on like a sale, and it's it's just whenever you have more than one trustee, it get it can be a little tricky. Sometimes kids live in different parts of the country, so that can be tricky. Well, too. Well, that was another thing I was going to ask is let's say you you know you uh, set your your son as the beneficiary on it, and your son is married. So you would want it to only be your son as the beneficiary, not them as a couple. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, that's that's a, that's another thing to consider yeah. as well. And uh, in the in that particular case, it, it could be separate property, and it could be put into a separate property trust, or or maybe the trust that the parent sets up is uh, is the type of trust that continues. Uh, after they pass away, and 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 a lot, actually a lot of trusts are being set up this way currently, and and so if you have more than one kid, what happens with your trust is the trust goes into se- several sub trusts. It just gets tricky when you're sharing the same asset yeah. in a, in a sub trust because now you have a tenant in common interest in a in a property in your own trust, but it's shared with others. Yep. Well, and even at the most basic level, I think real property gets a lot more complicated maybe than say an IRA, but even there the rules are changing, right, Al? Potentially. Yeah, um, in in terms of the the distributions to the beneficiaries with the stretch IRA potentially disappearing. Yes, I was, I was wondering where you're going with that, but uh, yes, absolutely, because the the stretch IRA this is the um, the Secure Act that uh, the House has voted on and the Senate is is looking at right now. They have Senate not... bring every community up for retirement enhancement. Oh, very yes. good, Andy. You've been listening <laughs> to our podcast, but that is one of the major provisions. There is the stretch IRA uh, will go away uh, in in most cases, not all. In most cases, uh, but uh, that's that's one thing. And we just talked about with uh, in an, I think another segment with the stretch IRA. That means when you inherit an IRA as a non-spouse, you can stretch that over your lifetime. If this new law passes, and it looks like it probably will, then the stretch IRA goes away and your your beneficiary would have to pull the money out within 10 years. I do find it ironic that Congress was able to agree on something, what, 367 to 3? And when they finally came to that kind of bipartisan agreement, it was that we're going to take away a major benefit to the American taxpayer. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I know, right? I've linked to information about the SECURE Act and its implications for the stretch IRA, as well as some free estate planning resources in the podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Click the link in the description of today's episode in your podcast app to go right to the show notes. 
One of those free estate planning resources is our estate plan organizer, because the last thing anyone wants to do in the case of a death or a divorce or becoming disabled is to have to hassle with paperwork. Save the headache. Download and fill out the estate plan organizer now with all of your accounts, beneficiaries, wills, trusts, insurance policies, all the rest of that information, and store it in a safe, easily accessible place for your loved ones. And don't forget to update it regularly as well. You can download it from the podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Now let's get some answers to some more of your non-Roth questions. Send in those money questions, Roth or otherwise, by visiting yourmoneyyourwealth.com and click Ask Joe and Al on air. Just like Morgan did from Duarte. Duarte. Duarte, California. Where's Duarte? No idea. We'll have to get a research team on it. Duarte, California. All right. Hi, Joe and Al. Like your show and podcast. He doesn't love it. I know. I just realized that, Morgan. <laughs> I'll, I'll help you translate because you haven't really read this. I'm 50, <laughs> I'm 50 yo. Years old. <laughs> it's near Azusa. As, uh, that's like Azusa. There's, Covina. Uh, what? Covina. Covina. Pas- pa- it's east of Pasadena. Mm. Still. No idea. All right. But um, he's 50 yo. And I've <laughs> maximized my 403B half to Roth. Half to traditional. Also saved in two Roth IRAs. A few years ago, I rolled over my 403B from previous employer to an annuity, which I realized that fees are high. My question is, can I transfer from the annuity to a traditional IRA account without any consequence of tax or penalty? Thank you, and look forward to hearing back from you. All right, Morgan, hopefully after this uh, question that we answer for you, you will start loving show yeah not just liking it <laughs> yes um well are we going to assume that he he transferred it to an annuity inside an ira or she yes or she. that's what morgan did she had a 403b she moved it into an ira which was an annuity and i'm guessing it depends on the type of annuity but let's say it's a variable annuity because she realized that fees are high or he realized fees are high yeah he or she yeah um Yes, so here's here's the quick answer. You can absolutely transfer the money from the annuity IRA into another IRA, and you can invest in anything you want. Mutual funds, stocks, bonds, ETFs, index funds, cash, whatever. Will there be taxes? The answer is no. It's a custody in, uh, custodial transfer. So it just goes from the annuity company into, let's say, Vanguard. TD Ameritrade, Schwab, whoever, whoever that you choose. So it just goes from one custodian to the next custodian, right? You don't see the money. It's just a quick transfer. There is no taxes due. Is there penalties? Uh, There could be a CDSC charge. It's basically a surrender charge from the annuity company. Um, So, but there would be no IRS penalty or anything like that. Here's what I would suggest. You take a look at what, what what fees are you paying in the variable annuity? And Al, what fees do we usually see? 3%? Uh, you mean ongoing? Yeah. Yeah, 3. I'd say 25 to 4. Okay. Why don't we say that? Let's, so 25 to 4% is what Morgan's probably paying inside her variable annuity or his variable annuity. Yeah, every year. Every single year. So let's say, Morgan, it costs you 8% to get out of this thing. So let's say it's $100,000. It's costing Morgan $8,000 to get out of it. That's the penalty. A lot of people would say, wow, I don't want to do that. 
That's $8,000. Or you could just continue to pay the annuity company $4,000 in fees every single year until you die, which is going to be cheaper for you. So, 8, yeah, 8000 So sometimes you just got to, you know, lick your wounds and take your medicine. Yeah, and you're, but you're also allowed to take 10% out per year. Don't, don't do that. That's stupid. No, that no, there's no surrender charge on that. And if you, yeah, but it's ten percent. But you got ninety percent still stuck at those high fees. I, I know, but in some cases, when you do this, maybe in a few months, it goes down to six okay. percent surrender. So, so you got to look at all that. Yes, very well said. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, Morgan, that's what I would take a look at. Look at what your internal fees are, um, what the surrender charge is, if any. I'm not sure how long you've had it. Maybe the surrender charge is over. Um, so maybe it might not cost you anything up front, uh, but you will save a ton of money in fees long-term if you get out of the product. Yeah. But but then it's the question is, why did you buy the product in the first place? What were the benefits that you liked? Do you like guarantees? Are you very risk-adverse? Um, was there something within the product that you know you thought was intriguing? So um, you got to, I guess, put all of that stuff into play, too. Um, so, yeah, but if you want to transfer it out, go for it. Um, if you want to keep it in there. Uh, just know the pros and cons. Brooke from San Diego, she writes in. Hi, you two. Hello, Brooke. I listen to your podcast, and it's really good. Thank you. Well, thank you, Brooke. What do you think about IUL? God damn it. Is that, that's like, I think, four times we've had this question. People like this. I'm 52, already max out my 401k. In addition to that, do you think it's a good idea for me to fund an IUL? Is somebody promoting the heck out of these things right now? They have to be. That's got to be it. Um, IUL, Indexed Universal Life Insurance Policy. Uh, Brooke, you're 52 years old, maxing out a 401k. Do you have any money in a brokerage account? you have any money in a Roth IRA? How large is your 401k? How long do you plan on working? Is your debt of your home paid off? Do you own your home? Do you have rental properties? I mean, those are all the things that I would want to know before you start going into an index universal life insurance policy. Uh, to give our listeners a 30-second kind of tutorial is that it's a life insurance contract. Brooke, I don't know, do you need life insurance? Do you got kids? Uh, um, if you don't need it, then don't buy it. But it's a whole life, or uh, I'm sorry, universal life policy where you pay premiums into a life insurance contract. And then it grows, deferred, and then you can pull it out tax-free depending on how you pull it out. So in other words, you put more into this contract each year than the premiums, and so the extra gets gets invested. Correct. It's um, th- There's a, a corridor... Um, within the insurance contract yeah. where you can fund to a certain level before it becomes a modified anomic contract. Yeah, so you can't just do any amount you want. There are limits. There are limits that are set by the IRS guidelines because um, there's a cost of insurance, right? And so you get the tax deferral and you get the tax-free dollars coming out. And how it, why it comes out tax-free is that it's five-fold tax treatment, first in, first out, and then you take loans from the cash value. Um and loan is not a taxable event, so that would be tax-free as well. You're just taking a loan from yourself. So should you do it? You know, I hate bashing this product, but I would say no. I mean, is that good enough, you think? I mean, do you need life insurance? I mean, do you have, what's your net worth look like? But these guys sell it like a super Roth. Well, they do. They sell it so that you have tax-free income in retirement. Yeah, but just convert. 
If you got a big fat IRA and you're maxing that thing out, convert to a Roth, it will be so much better for you because what goes into an IUL is after-tax dollars. So if I have a 401k plan and if I convert it to a Roth IRA, that's after-tax dollars, right? I'm paying the tax to get it in. So they say, well, no, you could put a lot more money into an index universal policy. And it grows tax-deferred, and you pull it out tax-free. But you have so many limitations in regards to, A, I'm paying a cost of insurance, right? That I may or may not need. That I may, yes. And and if I pull too much money out, I could blow the thing up. If I get tired of paying the high premiums, it blows up. Right. So it's just, it's just, it's sold so good. It's like, here, how would you like to, you know, have something? You already maxed out your 401k, so of course you need this. Let's just jam a bunch of money in here, let it grow tax-deferred, and then when you pull it out, it grows tax-free. And then the, the, to, to boot, they'll, they'll say, well, you can get stock market-like returns with no downside risk. I mean, it's just sickening. It's not that. They're buying call options on the S&P to say that you're invested in the S&P, and that's based on a zero-coupon bond. So you're not even giving the dividends, which is about 40% of the return of the S&P. And then there's caps and then there's participation rates and then there's everything else in between is so, it is it possible the advisors that are selling this get a commission i doubt it <laughs> <laughs> he's being I, sarcastic brooke i i highly doubt it i'm sure they're a fiduciary uh, <laughs> not i don't know i mean i'm not here to judge i'm just here to help and um you know you're 52 and I'm not right. It, it, give me some more information. I can help you out a little bit more. But um, I would say no. It's not a good idea to go to IUL. Um, but that's just from the lack. Just from the limited information that I have. Um, we got Judy from San Diego. She writes in. Um, so I get Wade Files newsletter after learning about it on your podcast. His last was about reverse mortgages. But can you translate this article from finance to English so I can understand? I clicked on that link when she first sent it, and it was like a link to some... And I, I emailed her back, and I said, Judy, that wasn't the story you were looking for. That was about somebody here in San Diego that got into an accident or something. Right, like and someone she, fell out of a helicopter. She, she replied to me, and she said, there must be gremlins in my computer. Try this. So here's the proper link. Oh, so I can't read a link on paper? <laughs> That's so why I sent it to you two I, days ago for I you to read it, well, Joe. I have it right here. Oh. I don't prep for the show. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's obvious. Al, do you, do you remember I even said you should probably read like, this in advance? Yes, you did, like, you did say that. All right, that. how do I read a link? I don't know. What the hell? Okay. So I will start. I don't. This this is kind of a complicated What is it answer. about a, a, like a home equity so, conversion so, mortgage? So this is Wade Fowles' article. It was originally published in Forbes. It's called, How Does a Line of Credit for Reverse Mortgage Work? I can explain that in 30 seconds. Okay, go for it. So it's what he's talking about a, a Heckam. Right, home equity conversion mortgage. He is, and so the actual line of credit of a home equity conversion mortgage grows. It's the most interesting line of credit that you could possibly ever imagine, and I think this is why Judy was very confused because it's a unique product. So what happens is that you take out a line of credit on a home equity conversion mortgage. So let me explain a reverse mortgage first is that you could have a mortgage on your home that you don't have to pay a payment to. The equity of the home pays the payment, right? Yes. So at the at the death of the owner of the home, that's when the debt is paid off. So whatever equity is left 
goes to the heirs, and then um, the note gets paid off at that point. So there's actually no outlay of cash flow to pay a reverse mortgage. Uh, a line of credit is very similar to the reverse mortgage in sense where I'm going to open up a line of credit within the equity, so I don't have to ever pay that line of credit back. But let's say I open the line, it's worth $200,000, and the interest rate on the line of credit is 5%. So what happens if I don't spend a dime of that line of credit? It's going to grow by 5% per year because it's the opposite of paying it down. It's just growing inside the overall um, equity of the home, right? That line of credit could almost sometimes actually be larger than the the value of the home. Yeah, depending upon how much the home actually appreciates. Right. So all it is is a line of credit, Judy, that you can use, that you can then take off and live off of, um, that you will never have to pay back. So you can open up the line at, I think, age 62. Um, and I would encourage everyone to take a look at it. Of course, there's fees involved. Uh, but it's a good safety valve for some individuals to lean on if the market crashes or if you want additional cash flow. Uh, the, the income that you would receive or the cash flow that you'd receive from it is tax-free. Um, so, yeah, Wade Fall is all about it. Yeah, so let me also add a couple more things quickly. So there's a principal limit, which is how much you actually borrow, and then there's a line of credit. And, Joe, just as you said, they grow at the same rate. So, in other words, if you borrow $100,000 and you, and you still have another $100,000 on the line of credit and you don't do anything for the next 10, 12 years, and at a 6% rate in 12 years, it would double. So now, all of a sudden, there's you, you owe 200000 on the loan. But you have 200000 But you have 200000 on a line of credit, right? And so another way to think about this is let's say you borrowed all 200000 right off the bat, right? And so now in, in 12 years, it's, it's with the interest, it's $400,000. And you're right, you never have to pay it back. It's, it's, it's non-recourse, which is it's only based upon the home. But you've used up your line of credit. On the other hand, if you have a $200,000 line of credit, don't do anything and let it go for 12 years at 6%, then now you can borrow 400000 So Wade's foul comment is, Doing this sooner is better than later because this thing grows at a pretty rapid rate, particularly if you're in an area that has low housing appreciation. If you're in an area like we are in California, which tends to have a higher appreciation rate, it may not work quite as well. But in lower appreciation rates, this is a great deal to, to get it as soon as you can. So hopefully that was English. <laughs> All right. Um, we got time for one more. Okay. We got, uh, Shane... Um, he came uh, right, wrote, wrote back in from Hamden. Yeah. Hamden, Connecticut. And then I was like, We didn't know hell, where it was. Where the hell is that? Well, you know why? I don't know where that is. He goes, Joe, Al, and Andy, thank you for answering my question regarding is too much Roth a bad thing? I, I like how he's like, We yeah. have now, it's like a little show. Right. Right. Yes, we have actual committed listeners Remember who love that? us. Remember, Remember, it used to only be your mom. Yeah. For years and yeah. years. Remember the episode of Is Too Much Roth a, a Bad Thing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that was a really good episode. Yeah. Uh, loved it. Um, I also enjoyed the outtake around the location of Hamden, Connecticut. We are actually from Southern California ourselves, but moved to Hamden two years ago as my wife is attending Yale. No uh, wonder why I don't know where the hell Hamden Connecticut is because there's, I've never been to Yale. Yeah, me neither. And I don't think I would ever be close to being accepted into Yale. Yeah, it never came up. Yeah. I mean, if I walk near Yale, they would ask me to leave. <laughs> They'd escort you out of town. They would yeah, be the like, uh, "We don't like your kind because you are stupid." <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yale, 
Wow, that's an awesome school. Good for you, Shane. Uh, most people who attend Yale with families lived in Hamden, uh, since it's a better for our kids. Well, congratulations. I would have said, yeah, this is um, Shane from Yale. <laughs> <laughs> then we would have said, okay, this guy's smart. He points out that Yale is actually a New Haven, so yes. most people that go there, yeah. I would be like, yeah, this is Joe from Yale. Got a question? <laughs> Got this big well, elf from, from Harvard. Oh, well, I just thought I'd, I'd share. Keep up the excellent podcast, guys. All right. Thank you very much, everyone, for your nice emails. Keep, keep them coming. We'll keep answering them. Uh, show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. We'll see you next week. Click Ask Joe and Al on air at yourmoneyyourwealth.com to send in those emails. We love your questions, comments, compliments, complaints, stories, and all of them will eventually make it into the podcast. So don't forget to send them in. The free resources in today's show notes are off the charts. I've got more on indexed universal life insurance, reverse mortgages, self-employed business taxes, estate planning, and the SECURE Act. You can download the Roth IRA Basics Guide and our estate planning organizer for free and read the transcript of the entire show. Click the link in the description of today's episode in your podcast app to go straight to the show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Now stick around for derails at the end of the episode if you're into that sort of thing. We're talking contracts with Big Al, email questions for me, and drunk yoga. Your Money, Your Wealth is presented by Pure Financial Advisors. Get a no-cost, no-obligation, two-meeting financial assessment with a certified financial planner by clicking the free assessment button at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. You don't even have to be local to where we are here in Southern California. You can have one of these two-meeting financial assessments online. Pure Financial Advisors is a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision. You like it, um, like in like formal documents that they say Big Al. <laughs> yeah, I saw one of those recently. I know. I love so, it. What do you think? Yeah. So did I. Oh my God. Yeah, that was the, like... <laughs> was a, a contract. Big Al, do you want to do this? <laughs> wow. Oh, oh my God, I read that. I was like, oh my said, God. Of course. You, the way you phrase it, sure. What was it? What are we doing? <laughs> I completely forgot what the contract was about. Oh. So, anyway, okay. If you do have a question for Al or myself, uh, you can send them to Your Money or Wealth. Or Andy. Or Andy. Yeah, she's getting them. Are you single? <laughs> <laughs> I have not gotten any of those. <laughs> you think more women do yoga than men? Uh, yes. I, I guess when I envision yoga, I envision a female. <laughs> I don't know about you. Charlie's Theron? <laughs> yes. I mean, I don't know. Right? If you're thinking yoga, are you thinking dude? Well, I, I don't see. know. That's kind of weird. See, see, my my only experience of yoga was actually recently. So, so this winery in near us in, in San Diego, Orthelia Winery, had a yoga and wine tasting, and I thought, oh, that's interesting. So I went with my lovely wife. Yeah. And um, I believe I was the only guy there. So, so did so you get drunk and do yoga? I got drunk after. <laughs> <laughs> after I was all feeling good and stretched out. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> <laughs>